0: Good morning, my name's Justin, I'm one of the pastors here at HHICC, so welcome to all of you guys that are joining us online, or if you're back on the patio, and all of you guys that are here in person, especially if this is your first time visiting with us. We've been in a series for really the last three weeks, this is the fourth and final week of this series called AKA God, where we've been exploring some of the different names for God that are found in scripture so that we can learn a little bit more about him. And over the last few weeks, we've looked at a number of those, uh, including God as the light of the world, as Jehovah Rapha, our healer. And then last week, our Connections Pastor Matt talked to us about Jehovah Mekedishim, which my name is a lot easier to pronounce this morning. So we have that to be thankful for, but that meant the God who makes us holy. And Matt talked a little bit about the fact that names have power, and that's why we're studying these names of God, but As part of that, he asked us to think about some of the names that we've been called. And so when he asked that, it kind of got me thinking. I was thinking about some of the nicknames and the adjectives that, you know, I've heard about me uh, in my life. And I honestly, I have no idea why this was the first thing that popped in my head. But when he asked that question, I kid you not, the first thing that I thought of was cheap. And the nicer way to say it is thrifty, but uh, my wife knows exactly what I'm talking about here because... uh, I think one of the biggest pet peeves that she has of things that I do is that when I go shopping for something for the first time, like something new, like I've got to look at every product in the aisle before I make the call. And I don't always look for like the actually cheapest thing, but I want to find the best value. You know, I want to do my research, but apparently that's kind of time consuming and annoying if you're shopping with me. So I get that, but uh, my cheapness or excuse me, my thriftiness, it comes out with our cars too. Uh, Until about a few weeks ago, I had a 1995 Nissan pickup truck with a little more than 300,000 miles on it. And I know, I love that truck. And in fact, I love that truck and I'm so cheap. I really still couldn't get rid of it even though I didn't need it anymore. So I gave it to my grandfather. But now that I got rid of that, we have got a, a couple of white Hondas now. We've got a white Honda Accord and then we've got a white Honda Odyssey. And so just out of curiosity, does anybody else have like the family of matching cars? All right, I'm not the only weirdo in here, so thank you for joining me in that. I didn't set out for that, it just kind of happened. We ended up with these two white matching Hondas, and not only do they match on the outside, but they're beige on the inside, and then even beyond that, they actually both have spots on the driver's side where the paint just isn't quite right, and so they've both had a couple things, just random stuff that happened that kind of messed the paint up and... uh, being cheap, I decided I should fix that myself instead of uh, forking over some money to have someone else do it. And I kind of figured, I mean, they're white cars; it's painting, you know. I mean, you sand it. Like, How hard can it be, right? Eh, yeah, some people are laughing, it's some uh, some people probably have an idea. I mean, this whole idea, of white paint is white white paint. Uh, yeah, I learned my lesson. We'll just say that. Uh, basically what happened is I kind of did my research on what I needed to do to fix it. And as part of that process, I found out that I needed to get Honda taffeta white NH578 paint. And uh, they kind of want an arm and a leg for that stuff. And so in my research, I found that you can also get a can of universal white paint. And so uh, you probably know enough about me at this point to know which which one I went with. So I, uh, I grabbed that universal white paint and set out to fix it. And let me just tell you... Universal white looks great on the can. It does not look so great on the car. right? As soon as, you, as soon as I got that paint on there next to that true white paint that it was supposed to match, your perspective changes a little bit. And when you start to compare and you see what standard it's supposed to match up against, it shows you that, yeah, that universal just doesn't really work that great. Off-white looks great until you put it next to a brighter, purer white. And that's kind of what happened uh, with my, my cars, that when I used that paint, it just didn't work out that great. And if you're wondering at this point why I ended up with two cars like that, you know, shouldn't I have realized after car number one that that paint didn't work that well? Well, I was still too cheap to get the right stuff. So we just went with it, and that's what we've got now. But this idea that really when you put something next to a standard, a foundation, the base that it's supposed to match up against... You start to see how it doesn't match. That something can seem pretty good until you put it up to what's best. And then you start to see how it doesn't match up. And we can have that happen in a lot of areas of life. And in fact, that same kind of idea happened in the nation of Israel. And so Israel was the people that God had chosen really to be his people and to to show this standard of holiness to the world, to shine kind of the light of God's character and his law to the rest of the world. But over and over again, they slipped from that standard. And in fact, even right after they made this incredible exodus from Egypt, as they had the leadership of Moses and Joshua and God's tabernacle and his law and all these ways that God had stepped in and blessed them, that they continued to fall away. And God had commanded them to drive out the people in the land that he had promised to them, but they didn't do it. And so inevitably what happened is they started to grow uh, or mingle with these people and to adopt their customs and even their idolatry. And they fell away from the standard that God had called them to. And they started even to to put these idols on their wall and these images in their homes and in their towns. And so God sent judges and kings and prophets and people to come and to rehold that standard up to Israel to remind them of what they were called to live up to. To show them that law and God's character and who they were meant to be. And inevitably what would happen is that for a time, they would come back to the Lord and they would try to live up to that standard again, but it wouldn't last. And over and over and over again, Israel would slip away from that standard. The prophet Isaiah was one of those prophets that God sent to Israel to, to speak to them, to hold that standard up to them again. And Isaiah prophesied at a pretty critical time in Israel's history. Isaiah prophesied more or less around 700 B.C., which at that point in Israel's history, the nation was actually divided. It had split in a civil war about 200 years earlier when 10 tribes of Israel formed a northern kingdom that was actually called Israel, and two tribes formed what was called the southern kingdom of Judah. And right around Isaiah's time, the sin of Israel that had distanced God and taken away his protection, caused those 10 northern tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel to be conquered by the kingdom of Assyria. And so in about 722 BC, they were conquered and exiled and essentially wiped off the map. And you might think or hope that that southern kingdom of Judah, really what was left of Israel, would have seen what had happened to them and would have you know, been driven to turn and repent and to come back to them excuse me, to come back to the Lord, but that's not exactly what happened. And so the Lord sent Isaiah really with a message to Judah, prophesying to them that they were on that same path. And unfortunately, they still didn't really respond, and about 100 years later in 586 BC, that southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the nation of Babylon, and they too were essentially wiped off. And in the middle of that in the middle of all of this sin of Israel and the ways that they had rejected God and turned from him and and God had distanced himself and and basically when in their destruction it could seem pretty dark and like God's plan had kind of gone off the rails and that things were not exactly the way they were meant to be but in the middle of that Isaiah still offered a message of hope and he talked about a future time and a future person the Messiah who would come and restore Israel and rebuild the kingdom. And he offered uh, really some of the most well-known and clear Old Testament references to Jesus that we have. And so even in the middle of their sin, God was revealing that he wasn't done with Israel. But he was also revealing that he had much bigger plans than just for them. So we'll start to see that this morning. And so I want to ask you to look at Isaiah Chapter 28, verses 16 and 17 with me. This is Isaiah chapter 28, 16 and 17. We're going to jump around in scripture a good bit this morning, but this is really kind of our base passage. And it it says this. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Now I want you to see real quick, I I want to read to you the NASB translation of this because I love how they put this little middle section that after God says that he lays this precious cornerstone, the NASB says that with this sure foundation, this cornerstone, that the one who believes in it will not be disturbed. That something about this cornerstone is incredibly important for a sure foundation. And so I want to look at this passage really quickly. When God says, Behold, I lay a stone in Zion. Now, Zion is kind of a word we've probably all heard, but you know, maybe we don't exactly know exactly what that means. Zion basically is a nickname for Israel in this case. You probably have heard Mount Zion before. That's a little bit of an overstatement. It essentially was the hill that King David originally captured and then built the city of Jerusalem on. And so Zion came to stand, not just for that hill, but really for the whole city of Jerusalem. And then by extension, the entire nation of Israel and the people of Israel. And so when God says, I lay a stone in Zion, it's really, I'm laying a stone in Israel. Not just the nation of Israel, but the people of Israel. This cornerstone, this sure foundation. now a cornerstone is not something either that I think we use a lot in our modern day uh, language. We probably all have an idea of what it is, but it's important to kind of get an idea of just how important a cornerstone is. Because in pre-modern architecture, when most of your buildings were built, or most of your important buildings were built out of stone, a cornerstone was critical to the construction of the entire building. The cornerstone was the first stone that was laid, and it became the basis for the entire rest of the building. For every other stone in the building, it had to be in line with the cornerstone. The cornerstone determined the angles and the lines for all of the remaining stones in the building. It set the standard for that building. And in fact, it was, there was really such a significance to this that in ancient times, the builders or the architects or even religious leaders sometimes would come in and they would perform a, a ceremony and offer a sacrifice on the cornerstone of a new building, whether it was wine or grain or even a blood offering, and they would dedicate it to God because it held such significance. And so God says, I lay a new stone, a cornerstone for Israel For the people of God. Because Israel needed a new start. They needed a new perspective. And really not not a new start. It seemed like a new start. But really what God was revealing was the next and the most important part of his plan. Because the fact of the matter is is that Israel was never going to be able to do what they were called to do. They were never going to be able to live up to God's standard of holiness And to match God's character. They needed a perfect foundation. And they weren't perfect. And you see the problem wasn't just that they broke some rules. You know that they couldn't behave themselves. Sometimes like we think sin is. The reality is is that their problem was their idolatry. They had adopted these idols around them. And they'd put these images up on their walls. Or these idols in uh, high places. Whether it was in their homes or in their towns but what's true is that those were just symbols of the real problem the problem was that those idols were in their heart and it's why Israel could never get it right the idolatry was in their hearts and no matter no matter how many judges or prophets or kings came to hold that standard up to them again they couldn't match it something was out of alignment with God And so in the middle of that, that sin and idolatry, God stepped in and he laid this cornerstone that we now know to be the Messiah, Jesus, this cornerstone that would be a sure foundation for their future, but also a perfect sacrifice for the sins of all time, for them and for the world. Because God started to reveal A much bigger plan and what was happening, this stone that God laid was not just a step in the plan to fix Israel, but it was a step in a plan to fix some much bigger things than that. That God was revealing a bigger plan, a bigger picture of what he was doing. So I want us to think a little bit about, okay, so then what exactly is Jesus the cornerstone of What's the significance of that? What does it mean for our lives that Jesus is this cornerstone? And so we'll take a look at it this morning, and I think it starts with this. Christ is the cornerstone of the universe. He's not just the cornerstone of Israel. He is the cornerstone of the entire universe. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 says it like this, and I think this is about the best that it can be said. It says, he is the image of the invisible God might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ is the cornerstone of the universe and God's plan to fix it. What God was revealing was not just a plan to redeem and restore Israel, but to redeem and restore the entire universe, centers on the person of Christ and his work on the cross. It's that important. It's that critical to what God is doing. And in fact, it's, it's important that we understand this identity of Christ as the cornerstone because it has massive implications. You see, I think sometimes we, uh, we think about sin and, and the universe and how it's fallen, and it kind of just seems like this you know, when Adam and Eve sinned and the universe fell and that's kind of God's punishment on us. But we need to understand that it, it really is a consequence that Christ's nature, God's nature as the cornerstone of the universe, the thing that holds all things together that when our sin came into the picture and it separated God and it pushed him out of his rightful place, that by his nature things don't hold together the way they're supposed to that God has been pushed from his rightful place. And you can see it in Adam and Eve's sin. Sometimes we think about it, you know, they broke this rule, they're not supposed to eat this piece of fruit. But in reality, what was happening was a lot deeper than that. And the serpent said as it was offered that, that if you take this, God, or your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So Adam and Eve's sin was not to eat a piece of fruit that was off limits it's the beginning of that idolatry thinking that they could be like god to take his place and we started to suffer the consequences of that of replacing him and rejecting him it's what people have done for the rest of history it's what israel continued to do to replace god to reject him So I want you to see what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 118. This is verses 19 through 24. In Psalm 118, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me, and to become my salvation, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous In our eyes, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You see, when Israel rejected the cornerstone that God offered to them, it revealed a bigger part of his plan that we'll talk about in just a second. But I got to get on a soapbox for a second because we probably have all heard the last part of that verse, right? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I don't know about you, but like I picture like somebody rolling out of bed and it's sunny and it's like, this is the day the Lord has made. Like, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I want us to hear like, okay, sure, we can use it in those contexts, but I think there's something better for us to see here. That what God calls us to rejoice at in this is the gospel. The context of this verse is not just, oh, some things went well today. Let me rejoice like God did this. I mean, if you want to use it like that, okay, but there's something better. What God calls us to rejoice in here is that he has opened the gate of righteousness to us. He's become our salvation. He's laid a cornerstone for our foundation that can't be shaken, that can't be disturbed, and that in the middle of our sin and our idolatry and all the ways that we fail, God stepped in to the picture to make us righteous, to become that unshakable foundation for us. And we can rejoice in that every day. That that's truly where our joy and our goodness comes from. So sorry, soapbox over. I just wanted us to think about that. But the reality is is that our temptation has always been and will always be, at least in this life, to rejoice in ourselves. To like Israel before us or Adam and Eve, to think that we can be like God and to try and replace him In our lives with different things that's how Israel failed and unfortunately they rejected or largely rejected most of them did God's offer of a cornerstone that was part of a bigger plan so I want to start to show you what that plan looks like Isaiah chapter 8 14 talking about Jesus says he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 through 44, Jesus himself says something similar to the Jewish religious leaders. He says, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls, excuse me, on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, God provided a path to Israel. But they had become so consumed with themselves and, and and thinking that they were central to God's plan that they missed that God was doing something bigger. Than them. And that in their rejection, what was revealed is that God's people, the identity of God's people, was so much bigger than just ethnic Israel. And that God's kingdom was open to anyone who would believe. And it wasn't a matter of whether you were biologically descended from Abraham or had been circumcised or any of the other things that made somebody Jewish. That God was in the work of redeeming the universe and making a people for Himself that could include Israel, that Israel was invited to, but that was open to everyone, that was the church. Because what God revealed is that Christ is the cornerstone of the church, of us, of people from all around the world, of anybody who will place their faith in Christ. This people that God is building up for himself. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 says it like this. It says, by the spirit you see in the church god is building a people for his possession this miraculous group of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation around the world that will come before god and place their faith in christ and be made to look like him and to shine that light to the world to hold up that standard like israel was meant to That now we are called to the same thing, to hold that standard of God's character and his law up to the world and to bring the message of this gospel, this incredible thing that he has done, sending his son to die for us and to become our cornerstone and our sure foundation. The church now is meant to be a glimpse of the kingdom of God here and now, a place or a people where God's grace and his love and his goodness starts to manifest itself in us to the world. And the reality is, is that it starts, that structure is built up and it, and it really happens as individual stones are built together. And another truth that we find is those stones themselves are actually meant to be formed and fitted by Christ in line with the cornerstone. Because the third thing that I think we need to understand about the nature of Christ as cornerstone is that Christ is the cornerstone. Of our lives. He is the cornerstone of each and every one of our lives. Genesis 1:27 says that we're made in the image of God. And those verses that we looked at a little bit ago in Colossians, uh, they tell us that Christ is that image we're made in. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the one that we are modeled after, made to look like, designed to grow towards, and to be guided by to constantly have him shaping and molding our lives to look like him, to be measured by him and defined by him. He is that thing, that standard that we are called to hold everything else in our lives up against and to see if it lines up, if it's right or not. Jesus is our personal cornerstone. First Peter Chapter two, verses four through five, Peter says it like this. He says, as you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our lives undergo a process a lot like a building with a cornerstone You see, in in an ancient building, when a cornerstone was used, they would come in and they would clear off the site, which might require that they take some stones that were already there and remove them. And some of those stones might come back, but the cornerstone had to be laid first. And from that point forward, every other stone that was used as part of the building had to be in line with the cornerstone. And so some of the stones from the original site, they might get reused, they would have to be shaped and trimmed and brought into alignment with him. Some of the stones, they might just not be able to get it to work, so they would be discarded. And the reality is is that our lives undergo that same process. That when we place our faith in Christ, it's not adding a little Jesus brick in amongst all the other parts of our lives, that God calls us to a total demolition and renovation where everything from that point forward is based off of the cornerstone of Christ in our lives. And so a lot of times, some of the the previous material, right, of course it's gonna be reused and God will form it and fit it into the new structure that he's building, but sometimes there will be things that won't fit and that God calls us to discard And so we go through this process where God brings everything in line with Christ. And it's not in order for us to be saved. I want to make sure you hear this. This is when we're saved. God begins this process of renovation and this work in us. Like Matt talked about last week of how God is the one who makes us holy. But we have to undergo that work and it's not always easy. In fact, I would probably say it rarely is easy. And I know for me, when I was kind of a newer believer, I wasn't exactly sure what all this would look like. I, I placed my faith in Christ. I came to know God really around uh, the time I was 17. I was a senior in high school. And as I was turning 18 and heading off into college, there were still some major areas of my life that I had not submitted to God. And so as I was kind of in my early stages of college and, and you know, as a young man around 20 or so, I had a lot of plans that did not line up with the cornerstone of Christ in my life. I had plans that were ambitious and that were centered on kind of me making a name for myself and making a lot of money. And practically, I had kind of gotten in to the world of accounting, which I uh, was really bored to death in and didn't really enjoy. But I'd kind of gotten blinded to the fact that I had an easy path in front of me to hopefully become a partner in a big firm. And I had an internship at one of the biggest firms in the country. And so I was kind of blinded and on this path that I'm going to go, I'm going to do this, I'm going to work, and I'm going to become a partner. And that's what my life is going to be about. And over and over again, I started to sense God leading me towards something different and towards something better, but I resisted it. And I felt like it was kind of like God just coming along and just tapping on those areas of my life felt you know, it's a little bit like when you're playing Jenga and you're trying to get one of those pieces out and you're just kind of tapping on it, trying to wiggle it out of there, hopefully before, you know, you knock down the whole structure. And so God was tapping on those areas of my life that needed to be fixed, that needed to be removed. And I resisted it for a long time until finally God's little taps got a little bit harder and, uh, That internship that I had that should have been really a shoe-in to a full-time job at that company for kind of some interesting reasons, I didn't get that offer. And I finally realized I needed to submit to God. And so within about three days of ending that internship and not getting that offer, I had applied to seminary and a job in ministry. And thankfully, both of those doors opened and it's kind of here I am today. And so God adjusted that, uh, that part of my life. But the reality is, is that even today, I'm not perfect by any means. And there may not be kind of those glaring chunks of my life that are out of alignment with Christ as much. But I think as we mature and as I've matured, what happens when we start to know God better and know ourselves better is that we just start to see all the little ways that we're out of alignment with God. The chips and the cracks and the things that start to shift out of place. But sometimes those things can go unnoticed. We just get used kind of the way things are and they can become dangerous when we don't pay attention to them as part of this process because it is a process it's not something that happens instantly you know we're we're not instantly built up as a masterpiece in theological terms we talk about justification that god does lay that cornerstone in our lives in an instant he saves us and redeems us and begins the work of making us like him but that process that living stone process of being shaped and molded and changed to line up with him is a lifelong process. That's what we call sanctification. Again, it's what Matt talked about last week of God making us holy. And there's got to be a constant improvement in us, a growing in Christ-likeness, seeing God mold us and shape us, but also realizing that we're never gonna be perfect in this life, that until Christ comes back until we pass away and God completes the work, what we call glorification, that we're never gonna be perfect. We're always gonna find little things in life that are just a little out of whack, a little out of alignment, things that need to be submitted to God and brought to him and put in line with the cornerstone. So the key question for us is, for those of us that are following Christ, is is there a constant seeking in our life? Are we trying to identify those areas? Are we examining ourselves and seeing where are we out of alignment with God? There may be things that have just kind of slowly started to drift away because the reality is is that we will always have that temptation to put something else in God's place. We're always going to be tempted to idolatry. Until Jesus comes back and finishes the work for us, there's going to be drift And things that once did fit in alignment in our lives may start to take uh, improper priority in our lives and start to try to take God's place. And the Israelites weren't the only ones to fail at this, although it can kind of be easy to think that. You know, when we look back at their story, you know, we might see that they placed these idols and these images in their towns and in their homes. And I, I know we can be quick to think that, well, at least we don't do that. I don't have like idols of different gods in my house that I worship, except for the fact, I mean, you know, it's not like any of us devote our time, our attention, even our finances, you know, to some images on a wall that go by, you know, I don't know, except, you know, I think all of us have probably spent more time getting a picture of what our lives should look like, of dedicating our time and attention and our finances, to the TV, or some other screen, some other set of images than we have, to aligning ourselves with God's word, to spending time with him, and to seeing what our lives should look like from him. Now, I'm not telling you, like, don't go home and rip your flat screen off the wall. That's not what I'm calling you to. It might seem like that a little bit. To be honest with you, I don't know exactly what this looks like in our lives, but I think we need to realize that something isn't right. That in American Christianity, we can really quickly assume that just kind of how everybody else does things like this is okay, this is what all American Christians do, but the reality is, is that we're not called to compare ourselves to the standard of the culture or to compare ourselves to what everybody else is doing, but we're called to compare ourselves to the cornerstone, to Christ, and to see where in our lives we need to be brought in alignment with him. Because what the reality is, is that there can be some things in our lives that seem good and safe and like, oh, those are not a big deal. That's not a bad thing. But a good thing can be dangerous if it's out of its place. A good thing can become a bad thing when it replaces the best thing. A good thing can become a bad thing if it replaces the best thing. And Christ is that best thing in our lives. He is meant to be our priority. He must be our standard, that thing that we hold everything else in our life up to and say, does this fit? Is it right? Is it in alignment with him? Is this what he calls me to? He's our standard. He must be the cornerstone. Christ demands that he will not be a piece of our life slotted in amongst everything else, but that he should be our primary priority. That's where he belongs. And so often, though, as Christians, our lives feel like we wobble a little bit. We've got worries and doubts and and just ways that we kind of get off, you know, this feeling of fruitlessness or feeling of distance from God. And so often it happens because we've slotted Christ in, in kind of a gray area in the middle of everything else, whether it's our hobbies or our career goals or our relationships, our spouse, our goals for our kids, their sports schedules, whatever it might be. There's so many things that seem like they're good things, but they can become bad things if they take Christ's place in our lives. And we're not called to be complacent and comfortable and have easy American Christian lives that we picture. We're called to die to ourselves, to be formed and fitted to the cornerstone, to decrease so that he might increase and so that he'll be made known in our lives and in the church and in the universe. That's what Christ calls us to. And that as we do that, we will find a sure foundation and that our worries will fade away and that we'll find that sense of intimacy with God and that fruitfulness as we place Christ in his proper place. And so as we wrap up, I want you to think about this for a moment to think personally for all of us, what have we replaced Christ with? What have you, what have I replaced Christ with in our lives? Where might we be out of alignment with him? Whether it's small things or big things, all of us should be in that process of constantly examining and seeing what is God calling us to? Where do we still need to be formed and fitted to him? So I know just on the spur of the moment that can be a little bit of a difficult thing to think about, whether it's our success or our pleasure, our happiness, maybe politics, career goals, a house, a car, a spouse. There are so many things that we could go and list that can sneak in and start to take Christ's place in our life. And so to help you identify what that might be for you, I've got a few more questions for you to answer that first question. Number one being, what do you worry about? What do you find yourself worrying about? How do you spend your time? How do you find yourself prioritizing your time? What do you devote the most attention to? What's that first thing that crosses your mind when you roll out of bed in the morning? Is it your to do list for the day, a career goal? What you're gonna entertain yourself with is it how many likes you got from the post you put up the night before. What are those things that might be distracting us, causing us to worry, taking up our time and our thoughts and our attention? Because Christ calls us to build our lives on the cornerstone, on him. He is meant to be our foundation and our standard And our ability, uh, really in our lives, to experience God's peace and his fruitfulness and his intimacy comes as we put Christ in his proper place and we build our lives on him as a strong foundation, but also our ability as a church to be who we're called to be, to shine that light to the world, to hold up that standard, to bring healing and hope, and to serve our communities. It comes from being built on the foundation of, Of Christ it starts there it's dependent on that we need Christ to be the cornerstone we need God's spirit to work in us to form us and fit us to him because our ability to move forward into the future and to bring light into the darkness of the world and our culture starts with that starts with Christ as the cornerstone of the universe of the church and of our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for everything that you are at work doing, God, that before the foundation of the world, Lord, you've had a plan. God, that in the midst of our sin and our inability to live up to your standards, to be in line with your character, God, that you have put a plan in place to redeem us and restore us and it centers on Christ, your son. Lord, and I pray just for every single one of us, God, that our lives would be formed and fitted to you. And Father, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you as their Savior. God, that they would know that these are not things that you call them to do to be saved, Lord, but that you offer Jesus as a sure foundation for their lives just by their faith. And that from that, you will begin the process of renovating and changing them and bringing them in line with you. And God, would you do that in all of our lives, Lord? Would you reveal the places that we've allowed to become idols in our lives, Lord, to replace you, even if it's small things that have just shifted and distracted us and taken our attention and our time and our finances away from you, God? Would you yield every part of our lives to you and you alone? God, thank you that you're so loving and gracious in the midst of that, God, that you do it. With such patience and love and grace poured out over us, Lord, you are so good. God, that you've done everything for us. Help us just to follow you and to partner with you. God, to see our lives made more like you so that our lives and our church, God, would be a light to the community, Lord, that we would hold up your character and your standard to the world to make you known and to give you glory, God. To bring your hope and your goodness and your love to places that so desperately need it, and to people that so desperately need it, Lord. Build our lives on you, God. You're our foundation. You're the cornerstone, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.